Hello, welcome to the monthly Skill Bites show where we share information that is geared to helping you succeed in your business. This is Judy Weintraub, CEO of Skill Bites and host of this show. If you want to position yourself as an expert, one of the best ways to do that is to become a published author. Skillbytes author platform provides the easiest way to get a book written and published. Today, our guest is Barbara Hemphill, founder of Productive Environment Institute, helping people accomplish their work and enjoy their lives and organizations to increase profit, productivity, and peace of mind. Barbara has been featured on national media platforms, including Good Morning America, The Today Show, and CNN Nightly News. She has also been showcased in publications, including USA Today, New York Times, Fast Company, Reader's Digest, Real Simple, and Guideposts. And she's a contributing writer for Formidable Woman magazine. Frequently called the Paper Tiger Lady because of her best-selling book, Taming the Paper Tiger, she has also written Love It or Lose It, Living Clutter-Free Forever, Simplify Your Workday, and Bushido Business. Barbara's most recent book, Less Clutter, More Life, reveals that physical and digital clutter is a symptom of emotional and spiritual clutter. Barbara, welcome to the Skill Bites Show. I'm so excited to have you here today because you're going to help people learn how your books have helped you, as well as some tips on how to declutter. Well, thanks for having me, Judy. I love what you're doing. I think writing, uh, I think I've saw research that said that 80% of the population thinks they have a book uh, in them that they'd like to write, but like only 3% write it and only 2% publish it. So the work you're doing is very important. Well, thank you. It's kind of a shame that 1% that write a book and never publish it. Yeah, that's kind of a waste. I, I know I, I have known several of them because when I've been organizing offices, that's one of the things you come across. Interesting. Well, why don't you tell, tell us a little bit about how you got into the business of helping others declutter? Well, it's a long story. I've been doing it 43 years uh, and it started, I, my first husband and I lived in India and we adopted three orphan children, one of whom had special needs. Uh, he got transferred back to New York City, he worked for a nonprofit and didn't get enough money to pay the bills. And so I needed to contribute to the family income, but I wanted to make raising my children my number one priority. So I decided that the best way to do that would be to find a problem in the world that I knew how to solve that people would pay me for. And so I sat on the playground with my children and I would listen to what people were talking about. And I heard people talking about their struggles with getting organized, things about filing their taxes because they couldn't find their receipts or getting places on time or fighting with their kids about clutter or uh, not being able to eat off the table because it was filed, filed full of papers. And I thought, well, they didn't, they didn't have my mother and father. I grew up on a farm in Nebraska. And uh, we, although my mother was not a neat neck, she was very much a systems person. In fact, she was an administrative assistant for the president of a bank for 46 years. So everything I learned, I learned from them. And I, I thought everybody grew up with systems like they had, but I realized they didn't. And so I ran a $7 ad in the New York City newspaper that said disorganized. I organized closets, files, kitchens, you name it, call Barbara Hemphill. 
And uh, I got three crank calls from guys trying to pick me up. Uh, and the <laughs> fourth one was from a, a widow, 55-year-old widow, who uh, whose husband was an attorney. He died very suddenly, leaving her with papers everywhere, both in his home office and his office. And she didn't have a clue what to do. And so I went in and began sorting through the papers and quickly learned that the questions that people would ask me were, how long do you keep? And in those days, it was bank statements, because those are the days we used to get our canceled checks back in those big, thick envelopes, and everybody kept them for decades. Yeah, I remember that. Uh, yeah, even though, and then I would ask people, okay, so what's the purpose of a bank statement? Well, it's to reconcile your checkbook. But those same people who kept their bank statements for decades never reconciled their checkbooks, which I always thought was fascinating. And then they wanted to know about, you know, inspired insurance policies and recipes and and uh, junk mail and newspapers and magazines and tax records and um, insurance policies. And they wanted to know how long to keep it. And I really didn't know the answer, but I thought, well, I could figure that out if I go to the library. And I went to the library and I didn't find a user friendly book on the subject of how long do you keep the paper you have? And I thought that was pretty amazing because it didn't matter if you earned $18,000 a year or $800,000 a year, you still needed to know the answers to that, those questions. And so that's what launched the first book, Taming the Paper Tiger, which now exists. It's now called Organizing Paper at Home, What to Toss and How to Find the Rest. Okay, very good. Interesting. Well, it sounds like you had a, a, a very good journey there. It's been a very interesting one. When that book first came out, it was very exciting because it was published by a major publishing house. You probably remember the name Dodd Mead. They'd been around forever. Uh, they published the book. It was immediately excerpted in Reader's Digest worldwide, which was very exciting, except that Dodd Mead declared bankruptcy the same month that happened. Oh, wow. So at the time that it was written up in Reader's Digest, uh, the book was not available anywhere. And 10 years later, I got an email from someone in France who had read the article and tried to buy the book. And 10 years later, she was finally able to get it. Wow. So did um, did you continue to own the copyright to your book or did the publisher own that? The publisher owned it and I had to buy it back. So I borrowed money from the bank and I bought the rights to my own book back uh, then I published it myself. I decided I would publish it myself. And uh, in order to do that, I there was an office supply company called Viking Office Supply. And Erwin Helford was a CEO. His picture was on the cover of that catalog. And it would say, I don't know, I don't remember. It's like, if you pay, if you buy $100 worth of supplies, we'll send you a clock. And I thought, well, my book talks about the supplies that he sells. So maybe he would buy my book. And so I called. That was back before the days of voicemail and all those sorts of things. And he was in California. And I called at seven o'clock in the morning and I got him in his office. Wow. And I, I said, uh, I wrote a book that talks about your products. And I wondered if you would buy it as a premium. And he bought 27,000 copies. Wow. <laughs> and uh, but it was at like, I don't even remember three dollars a copy or something, you know, but then keep in mind, I didn't have the book yet. So then I had to get the purchase order from him to go to borrow the money from the bank in order to go to the printer to order to publish the book. So 
Uh, and I published 35,000 copies so that I had some left over and then very quickly learned that I did not want to be in the publishing business. So I went to one of my distributors and said, who, who else are you distributing for that might be interested in distributing my book? And they gave me the names of several companies, one of which was Kiplinger. And Kiplinger was a highly respected company in the financial services industry. And uh, so I called them and asked them if they'd be interested in publishing it. First, they said no. But then they called me back later because they said all their books were written by employees. But then they called me back later and said they wanted to do it. And that was very helpful because that was a recognized name. And the first corporate client I got was because... Uh, the CFO or CEO of the company had bought the book to help his mother organize her papers. And then he ultimately uh, called me into his corporation to work for him. Wow. Excellent. Very good. And then you went on to write several more books. I did. Uh, I Several of them uh, don't exist anymore. One was a work for one was one I did with Reader's Digest, which was very exciting. It was a, a series that they launched and it was going to be a beautiful book. And uh, they just the marketing didn't work. And it it's I have copies sitting up on my shelf. It's gorgeous, but it just never made it. And uh, Bushido Business turned out to be it was a compilation and um, it was a bad title. I didn't pick the title. Somebody else did and nobody knew what it was. So that didn't sell very well. Oh, and then I have to tell you a funny story. Uh, Taming the Paper Tiger was first called Taming the Paper Tiger. Then I wrote uh, a book that was about personal. So then uh, Kiplinger said, let's do one on the office. So we did one called Taming the Office Tiger. And that bombed because people thought it was sexual harassment. <laughs> yeah. So then we renamed it. And so then there were two books, Taming the Paper Tiger at Home and Taming the Paper Tiger at, at Work. Um, and then I wrote, I hired a ghost writer, Maggie Bedrosian, to help me write a book on clutter. And as we started working together, I thought, oh, I cannot hide this woman's skills. She is so fabulous. So she became my co-author. And we wrote uh, Love It or Lose It, Living Clutter Free Forever, which is not available now except on my website through um, in, in a uh, digital form. But I still love that book. I think it's a, a gorgeous book. My most recent book is the one that I'm the most um, happy about because um, it's, I think, my legacy. If I drop dead tomorrow, this book is what I was about. It's called Less Clutter, More Life. Uh, it's a it's a beautiful book. It's a, a little little book, but it's like an art book. It's full of beautiful photographs that were done by a friend of mine. And it's made up of the five steps that we use to help people organize whatever they want to organize, whether it's their life or their business or their kitchen counter or their handbag or their email or whatever it is. It's a five step process we use called the productive environment process. And so the book lays out that five-step process, uh, but it talks about how the emotions are what makes organizing so difficult. Um, I was autographing Taming the Paper Tiger books in New York City in the, in the 90s, I guess it would have been. And uh, I made the comment that every time I met someone who had difficulty letting go of things, if I ask enough questions, I would find out that that person had uh, had, had a, a severe emotional loss in their life. And when I was done, there was a young man in his probably early 20s came up and he said, my apartment is full of papers. 
He said, I come, I haven't had anybody in it for months. And he said, I come home from work at night and I say, okay, tonight is the night I'm going to clean up all these papers. And he said, I start to sort. He said, I sort them on my bed because that's the biggest flat space. And he said, I start sorting them. And he said, I become physically paralyzed. I just can't move ahead. And then he stopped and a tear went down his eye. And he said, my mother died when I was six. Are you telling me that I have to deal with the grief of losing my mother before I can deal with my papers? I said, I can't answer that because I'm not a mental health professional, but I can tell you what I have seen from my own experience, which is that if you will find someone you trust, probably not a family member, that will help you go through those papers and help you decide what you really need and want to keep. Uh, my business for these 40 years has been based on four words. Clutter is postponed decisions. And the reason we have trouble deciding is because of emotion. And so if you have someone with you that can help you make that decision, they can't make it for you. And if someone tries to do make it for you, they'll probably make the situation worse. I told that story. I was speaking at a university and a woman came up and she said, um, you just saved my marriage. I said, wow. I said, that's pretty dramatic. What, you know, what do you mean? And she said, I came to this conference which the, with the intent of coming, going home and telling my husband to buy married for 13 years that I'm leaving because he's a pack rat and I have allergies and I can't keep the house clean and he won't clean it up. And, and then she stopped and she said, his mother died when he was seven years old. She said, I never realized before that it wasn't that he wouldn't get rid of his stuff, but that he couldn't get rid of his stuff. So I said, may I make a soup? Oh, she said, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'm willing to go back and give it another try. I said, well, may I make a suggestion? And she said, yes. And I said, try saying something to him of the effect of I never understood before how important all this is to you. Let's see if we can figure out how to keep it so we can live together. So I followed up with them for about eight months and they made amazing progress because what happens is when somebody else tells you, you don't need this, but you're struggling with emotion, you immediately hang on to it. So it makes the situation worse. Interesting. And yet, so by acknowledging the issue, it probably freed the husband up to let go. That's what began to happen. Now, it's not it's not a miracle because you're talking about decades, right? And you're talking about pain. I don't know what his particular loss was. And the loss can be, um, there was one time there was a gentleman, he was like, he's probably 55. And uh, when I first moved to Raleigh, North Carolina, where I live now, um, I used to do trade shows. And he was always at the trade show. He was always kind of hanging around and listening to me talk. And one day he said, you know, he said, my clutter started when I was 45 years old and I lost the job I loved and I never found another one. And that brings up the issue of clutter being a spiritual issue. I believe that God created each of us to do something very unique. We all have very unique skills and we were created to accomplish our work and enjoy our lives. 
if we are clear about what that work is, then it's really much easier to get rid of clutter because you can ask a simple question. You can ask the question, does this help me accomplish my work or enjoy my life? Well, if you know what your work is, you can answer that question. But if you don't know what your work is, then anything is potentially useful. So people who keep all kinds of things are often people who are not clear about what their purpose is in life. But here's the here's the good news. The good news, and I've seen this dozens and dozens of times I've experienced it. If you begin to get rid of the clutter, it will reveal to you what your purpose is. People have who have lots of clutter don't do it because they think of all the things they can't get rid of and they don't focus on what they can. So, for example, we do uh, for companies, we do something. It's the most exciting thing I've done in companies in the four decades I've been in business. And we call them productivity parties. And they are for company it works in homes in the same way. But for companies, it's really exciting because most business owners really haven't thought about how much clutter is impacting the company's profitability, productivity, or peace of mind. They just they just haven't really thought about it. So, and and the companies for whom this is really helpful is the companies getting ready to move because if you're getting ready to move, you're going to pay to move all that stuff and it's going to be lots of stress and whatever. So before a company's moving, we have this event and we set up, uh, we work with the company first to find out what their legal retention guides are, guidelines are. So we don't make any you know, our philosophies, if in doubt, keep it. We're not taking any chances. And then we set up recycling bins and shredding bins and a trash to treasure location, which is where employees can put personal items, you know, like flower pots and books and things that they're not using. And then the most important thing is a, a staging area. And a staging area is, okay, this is in my office, this piece of equipment or this file or this book or this notebook. It's in my office. It belongs to the company, but I don't know what to do with it. And so it goes in the staging area, which means at the end of the day, then management can come in and say what to do with it. And so then we start the day with breakfast and a little seminar called Sometimes It Takes an Expert to Take Out the Trash. And we teach people how to make decisions. We don't tell them what they need to keep or what they can throw away, but we help them go through the process to understand that for themselves. And then we give uh, $10 Starbucks cards for the funniest thing, the oldest thing, the most valuable thing, the most worthless thing. And we send them to their office and say, okay, you have one job today, one only. Go through your office as fast as you can, pick up every item in it and say, does this help me accomplish my work or enjoy my life? And if the answer is no, it's clutter and you can't afford it. So the results of this are astounding. So I'll give you one, I'll give you a, a small company example and a big company. A small company it was a nonprofit. They were getting ready to move. They had theoretically cleaned so they were ready for the moving truck to come. I went in and in two days we got rid of three more tons of stuff. Wow. They'd been in the building for 50 years and a lot of the employees had been there over 20 years. So think of all the emotion, that stuff, those files, those notebooks, all that was emotion. It was people's legacies. It was like, this is what I spent 
all my time doing and I'm going to throw it away. But in fact, it wasn't adding value. It wasn't helping them accomplish their work or enjoy their lives. Mm -hmm. Then I did a big company with 400 employees and we spent half of the day cleaning out their physical and half of the day cleaning out their digital. One of the executives had 24,000 emails in her inbox in the afternoon and three hours later, she'd gone to 4,000. So in three hours, she went from 24,000 to 4,000. We did we did 12 days in the company. So each employee got to participate one day. There were 12 departments. We did 12 days. At the end of the 12 days, we had shredded alone 33,000 pounds of paper. And that doesn't count what we recycled and what we threw away. And we deleted almost one half of the files on the server. So the IT department was thrilled. Yeah, that will speed up their computers as well. Right. So you mentioned about your um, five-step process. Can you go into that? What does that involve? What are the five steps? Absolutely. I'd love to. It's called the Productive Environment Process. My company's called Productive Environment Institute. And we define a productive environment as an intentional setting in which everyone can accomplish their work and enjoy their lives. So the five-step Productive Environment Process, step number one, state your vision. Step number two, identify your obstacles. Step number three, commit your resources. Step number four, design and execute your plan. And step number five, sustain your success. Now you notice that the common word in those five steps is your. Organizing and productivity is an art form. There are many organizing consultants. Um, there's a uh, Marie Kondo is very famous. She's written The Magic of Tidying Up. Uh, David Allen is very famous in the business area. And we get Marie Kondo and David Allen dropouts. And the reason we do that is because both of them have methodologies that are, that are about what you should do. And they work. I mean, if you do what they say, they will absolutely work. There's no question about it. But a lot of people don't, don't want to be told what to do. So our question to people is not what we don't tell them what they should do. We ask them what they're willing to do. Organizing in and of itself has no value. It is simply a skill to help you do something, meaning get your vision. So that's why when someone says we want your help, the first question we always say is to do what? And if we are clear on that vision, then number two is, OK, what are the obstacles? You know, what have you by the way, this is how I, I collaborate with people writing books. I'm working on book collaborations right now. This is the five step process we use. So we say, OK, what's our vision for this book? Why are we writing it? What we want? What do we want to happen? How what will have to happen for us to be happy with our success? And then two, what are our obstacles? What are we afraid of? You know, what what don't we know or what have we tried that didn't work? And then step number three is what of our what of our resources? Well, of course, you would be one of those resources. Uh, but how much money are you willing to invest? How much time are you willing to invest? What knowledge do you have? And then step number four is 80 percent of it. That's the big thing. Design and execute your plan in order to reach this vision, overcoming these obstacles with these resources. Here's the plan. And so we write a plan. 
but you know as well as I do, Judy, that very few plans work perfectly the first time. I've just been collaborating on a book right now with somebody, and we've had some major calamities in terms of what's been going on. But then you have to go to step five, which is sustain your success. So it's like, okay, going forward, everything that you know, say, or think about that vision is one of those things. Maybe your vision's changed. You know, lots of times we start out with something and then we say, you know what, that's not quite right. I want to, I want to switch that. Or maybe there's a new obstacle or a new resource. So it gives people a framework around which to accomplish their work and enjoy their lives. Right. So it's not enough to want to declutter. It's starting with why do you want to declutter? That is exactly right. It is the why. Simon Sinek's book, The Why, that's the question. I mean, the question is, what is the why? And if the why is big enough, we can always figure out a way to get there. So we had a client who had hired three organizers in two states and paid multi-thousand dollars. And she met me and she wasn't even going to hire me because she said, there's no point. You know, I mean, she said, obviously I'm hopeless. I said, well, I don't think anybody's hopeless. So I said, let's work together for four hours. I said, I'll give you four hours of time just because I want to prove that because it makes me feel bad when people think they're hopelessly organized, disorganized. Nobody's hopeless. Nobody. So I said, I'm going to give you four hours of time and let's see. So we went together. We worked together. At the end of the four hours, she was ecstatic. So I said, can you tell me what is different about what we did than what you did with the other organizers? She said there were two things. Number one, she said, I never realized that all my clutter was because of postponed decisions. I just never understood that before. But it is. I mean, look in your clothes closet. Your clothes closet's full because you haven't decided whether you're going to lose the 10 pounds you need to lose to get into that favorite pair of pants again. And it's true of email. You know, you haven't decided whether you're going to keep it or whether you're going to do it. It's true of your spice or your junk drawer. I mean, take it, take it any place. It doesn't matter what it is. And secondly, she said, you didn't tell me what I should do. You kept asking me what I was willing to do. Hmm. And that made a huge difference for her. It did. Because for, for some people, it's a lot easier to be told what to do. Well, if you're that kind of a person, then you're going to want to go to a Marie Kondo. And I can tell people what I usually do is I'll say, if it were mine, this is what I would do. So I won't tell them what they should do. But I would I will often say, if it were mine, this is what I would do. And of course, if they trust you, then that's so that's the way I address that. If they want to be told what to do, I will tell them in the context of if it were mine, this is what I would do. But the thing of it is, if somebody does it because they're told to do it, then the question becomes, are they going to be able to sustain it? And that's the really important part. Unfortunately, the majority of people who call them organizing consultants and call themselves organizing consultants go in and organize and they do it for the client. And then that means the client doesn't understand how to do it. So they have to keep hiring them. And then ultimately, I mean, very few people are willing to keep hiring somebody, you know, forever. So they haven't learned how to do it. Now, one of the other really important things about organizing is, and I think we could probably apply this to book publishing too. I never thought about it, but there are three skill levels required to get and stay organized. So when we work with clients, we don't charge hourly rates. We do package prices because we do package prices based on these three skill levels. And the three skill levels, we call them our methodology, 
mechanics, and maintenance. Methodology is the big picture. So a great example of that would be when we work with clients and we do the majority of our work actually is with solopreneurs, a lot of people working out of their home offices and they have a lot of they don't want to give up paper yet. They maybe want less paper, but they really like paper for the most part. And um, so one of the questions they often deal with is they have business cards and post-it notes that they have collected from all over the place. And it's like, what do we do with those? Well, the answer to that is a CRM, a database, a customer relationship manager, something like that. And so the first question is, okay, if you don't have one, then we need to get you one. And they range from being free to being thousands of dollars, depending on what you do. Methodology is helping the client figure out what CRM is best for their situation. That's methodology. For a solopreneur, that's probably 15 minutes of our time, even though that's like a $500 an hour notice because it's like the story of the the farmer who hired the consultant to come out and fix his machine. And the consultant came out and uh, he turned a screw and he was there for three minutes and he left and he sent a bill for $3,000. And the farmer was like astounded. He said, you know, you were here for three minutes. And and the consultant said, yes, but I went to school for 30 years to learn which screw to to turn in what direction. (laughs) So that that methodology is what takes hours and years often of ex, of experience then mechanics if you apply it to the database of the CRM is how do you structure the data that you put in there because with CRMs it's garbage in garbage out if you don't put it in in the right way you're not going to get out what you want you need to know so we actually use our five-step process for that. So if we're working with somebody needing to get a CRM, we'll say, okay, if your CRM does what you want it to do, what are the things, are you going to email from it? Are you going to, you know, all the things that are that going to happen. So that's the, so we got methodology is choosing the CRM. Mechanics is setting it up, getting, and then maintenance is, okay, you've got to get those post-it notes on those business cards into the CRM. That's very low level work. We do not do that work. We will either help you find somebody to do it or we will teach you how to do it, but we're too expensive to do that. And it's not not something that we don't need us to do that. You can get a high school, you can get a 10 year old to do that for you. Right. So you don't don't need to pay us to do that. Yep, there's, uh, well, I guess you would still need to figure out how to scan in all those business cards, but yeah, there's virtual assistants you can get in the Philippines for six or eight dollars an hour. There are a lot. Yeah, there are many, many there. And, and once again, we go back to our five-step process. So we would we would we would look at those those business cards and we say, okay, if if they're the way you want them to be, like one of the things I say is I divide business cards into three categories. If you're somebody who networks a lot and you get a lot of it, I mean, I've gone into offices where they've had literally hundreds of business cards. So one of our principles, which is very, we operate all under principles. And one of our principles is today's mail is tomorrow's pile. So if we have a client who's dealing with business cards, we're, we're going to ignore all the business cards they had in the past until we stop the problem. And we stop the problem by saying business cards come in three categories. They are the ones you really know you want to keep, which are need to go in your CRM. 
They're the ones where, you know what, you don't really know if you want them or not, but you're not really willing to throw them away yet. So you could just have a basket or a box that you put them in your desk and you put them in in chronological order, which means, you know, after it gets so full, you can take the old ones out and throw the old ones away. And then the third category is the ones that people give them to you because they want you to have it, but you could care less. And you remember at the time thinking, oh, I don't ever want to talk to that person again. So those are the three categories for, for business cards. Yeah, I do that a little bit with uh, some things for, for my son. If he doesn't want to get rid of toys or stuffed animals or clothes or whatever, I can put them in a bag. And if he's not asking for them in six months, then he doesn't need them. That's exactly right. So he doesn't that's, even know they're gone. That's, a, that's exactly. It's a great way to do it. And it's important that you're doing that with your children. The other thing is to teach them how to make decisions. You know, like I used my son. One of my sons was a just an incredible pack rat which is understandable because he was an orphan, right? I mean, he was literally found left for dead on the streets of Bombay. So uh, the fact that he hang on to things makes perfect sense. There's a wonderful book called Sleeping with Bread that talked about orphan children who couldn't sleep at night. And they found that one of the ways they could help them go to sleep was they'd give them some bread that they could take because the reason they didn't go to sleep because they were afraid they weren't eat the next day. And so that they had this bread in their hand, they could sleep. Isn't it? I just, I love that story, but I would give him a certain amount of space and I would say, you can keep as many of, uh, I don't know, bottle top bottle caps as fit in this space. And then if there's a bottle cap you actually have to have and it doesn't fit in that space, then you've got to get rid of one of the others. And so it helped him learn to make decisions as well. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Very good. Um, so you talked about the emotional issues that prevent people from being organized. How, how, is it, how do you help them overcome those issues? Well, you go back to your why. When there's something you you want something more than you want something else. So you will do the organizing if that why is so vivid that you are willing to overcome the fear that you have. And I I think I started this way before and probably distracted myself, which I'm famous for doing. Um, People don't start organizing because they think of all the things they're not willing to get rid of. And so like when we're in the companies, we say to somebody, if you come to something and you're not sure, go on to the next thing. Don't let that stop you. Focus on what you can. So it's kind of like peeling the layers of an onion. You you peel it off what you can let go of. You keep asking the question, does this help me accomplish my work or enjoy my life? Or another question, we have what we call the art of wastebasketry, which is a series of questions And uh, all of this is available for free. I can give you all this information at the end. Uh, But the question is, what's the worst possible thing that would happen if I didn't have this? So you can do this with an item of clothing in your closet. You can do this with an email. You can do this with a file. So you say, okay, if I got rid of this or if I deleted this and I was wrong, what would happen? And is that a price I'm willing to pay? Again, it doesn't have a, it doesn't have a moral issue. Two people, two employees could answer the same thing. The worst thing that would happen is the boss would yell at me and one would say, oh, he'll get over it, throw it away. And the other one would say, oh, I don't want him to do it. Keep it. That isn't a right or wrong. That's personality. 
So then you create your organizing style to match your personality. You can keep, you can keep, we, we implement one of our other principles is what we call the cost principle, cost factor. You can keep everything you want if you're willing to pay the price. And the price is time, space, money, and energy. It's not a moral issue. It's a decision of resources. So when we're working with clients, as I said earlier, it is not my right or my responsibility to tell somebody whether or not they should keep it. What it is my job is to do is to help them understand what the cost is going to be so they can make an educated decision. Right. What were the four again? Time, time, space, money and energy and energy. That makes sense. I mean, if you only have a certain amount of space and you want to live in it and you keep getting piles, then you're restricted. And everybody's different about that. You know, some people require more space than others. And of course, that's what's challenging in families and in in workplaces because different people have different space, different um different needs. So then you have to, there has to be communication, you know, there have to be boundaries. Um, I am married to a man. He's an army, retired army colonel. So you would think army colonels would be neat, neat nicks. Well, this one isn't because he had all those privates. I guess they're the ones that kept him neat because he just is, a, he's just a pack rat. And I, when we were first married, I thought we've married 34 years and we first married, I thought, oh, this man is going to be the death of me. For one thing, nobody's going to hire me because they're going to say, you can't even organize your husband. And then I realized he didn't want me to organize him. And so that's really a key thing is I'm never today. Somebody said to me, oh, you just die if you saw my my office. And I said, I, it's your office. You know, I don't care. I really don't care. And in fact, I don't care about the paper. I care about the people. It is our clutter that is preventing us from accomplishing our work and enjoying our lives. That's what I care about. And I'll never try to convince anybody to use my services. I'm looking for people who say, where have you been all my life? Uh, one of my clients I got, I was in Washington, D.C. I lived there for a number of years. And I got a woman who uh, ended up being an ambassador. And she's passed on now, but she's one of my favorite people and favorite clients. And she heard me speak at the National Press Club. And she said, oh, you've just got to come to my to my condo. And so I went and it was beautiful. She'd actually traveled with one of our first ladies and the house was full of all kinds of beautiful things, but there were little piles of paper everywhere, just little, little piles on the kitchen counter and by the bed bedroom table and by the, in the bay window and different places. And so I showed her, wait, we did two things. One is we created what I call the home office for the business of life. Whether or not you're in business or not, everybody has the business of life and you need to have like a command center. And she didn't have one. So we turned her front hall closet into that command center, opened the closet and there was a vacuum cleaner hose, which fell out. And then when I talked to her about it, she wasn't even using that vacuum anymore. And there were eight coats. But when I talked to her about it, she was only wearing two of them. And there were books from people that guests had left behind and she was always going to return them. And she didn't even remember who they belonged to. And so we cleared all that closet out and we turned it into a little office. We took the, the racks out and we put in a, a counter high and a little stool, a little file cabinet. We wouldn't do that today because people would be more paperless. But back then there was a lot of paper. 
And uh, the key to it was we put a radio in it because her favorite radio program was All Things Considered. And it came on at the same time she was coming home from work. So she would take the mail out of the mailbox, open the door, sit down in the stool and sort the mail while she was listening to All Things Considered. And when we were, and then we showed her, we have what we call a finding system as opposed to a filing system. You can file place things anywhere, but the question is, how do you find them? So we have a very unique way of filing papers that we call the finding system. So we put that in place. And she said to me, if I had met you 25 years ago, my quality of life would have been so much better. The exciting news is we just had a client last week that has been following us for over two decades, but never hired us. And then we created a a webinar, an online webinar that people can do. We do all our work virtually now because people don't want to come in the houses. We've been doing virtual work way before COVID. And uh, this gentleman had struggled with paper for over two decades. And he used our program. He got it in place. He got his daughter to help him. His daughter organized her rooms as a result. He started out with his office. Then he went and did his closet. And it's like, so here he is now in his 60s, having solved a problem that has has plagued him for decades. So it is never too late. And the sooner one of our principles is today's mail is tomorrow's pile. So the reason what we do work so quickly is because we put in place what we call the magic six. And the magic six came out of uh, my having I worked with a software company to develop a software And prior to releasing the software, I organized 200 people with the idea of saying, "Okay, what's I know organizing is an art form. and I know everybody's different, but I think there are some things that are non-negotiable. And so organizing those 200 people, I looked for what those six things would be. And there that information is going to be free on the webinar that I'm, I'm giving you. So I won't we won't take the time to go over all now, but they can get those six things and it makes all the difference in the world. Oh, and one of the interesting things is we've had clients where they had the magic six in place and then COVID came. So they had to move things around, you know, like maybe a spouse came home and children came home and suddenly they had to move things around. And we would follow up and say, oh, you know, I'm not doing so well right now. And so the question we would ask would be, did you move your magic six? Oh, no. That I, I forgot. It's like, OK. And they, then they would do that. And I say we because I have a program Productive Environment Institute is a premier training program for people to do what we do. They're called Certified Productive Environment Specialists. We have them all over the world. One of our newest trainee right now is uh, actually from Australia, but she's stranded in uh, Cairo, Egypt right now. So she's taking her training program while she's stranded in Cairo. Well, you had mentioned this webinar, but our listeners aren't aware of it. So why don't you tell us a little bit more about this webinar that is available. Okay. It's the webinar is called tameyourpapertiger.com. You just go to www.tameyourpapertiger.com. And there's everything you need to set up your home office there, all the principles that I've just talked about. Um, and if you know someone who might be interested in becoming a consultant, somebody who's most of our consultants are women who have been in the corporate world uh, and they understood how broken systems were in companies. We we use the acronym for system of saving you space, time, energy and money. 
Every time you have to do something repeatedly, you need a system for doing it. And so that's what we do. We help companies put systems in place. And uh, the website for that is becomeaspecialist.com. So if you go to that, you'll hear the story of my business partner, Andrea Anderson, and how she was trying to organize her boss's office and getting frustrated. And she found uh, the paper tiger and came to me and now ultimately is president of my company. So tameyourpapertiger.com and becomeaspecialist.com. Excellent. Thank you. You're welcome. So one of the interesting things, you mentioned the um, price getting rid of things to, um, if you're willing to pay the price, time, space, money, and energy. There is an, a very interesting phenomenon that I've noticed almost every time I clean something, whether it's a laundry room or a closet, or doesn't matter what it is in the house, if I clean something, then I almost immediately find something good happening with my business or with home or something, there's some kind of energy that gets, that's now able to flow. I'm assuming you've heard of that and you've experienced it as well. Every single day in our work. I mean, you know, when I first started doing this, in fact, I described to you the productivity parties that we do. The very first one I did was um, in the early 90s. Back then, we called it a, a paper tiger day is what we called it. And uh, it was for a large association in Washington, D.C. And the reason we did it was that they had a room that they called the gloom and doom room, which was where they put files that when an employee left and nobody wanted to go through that old employee stuff, they would stick it in that room and they didn't have the right kind of shelving. And they piled, they just stacked the boxes one on top. And one day they all came tumbling down and the fire inspector happened to find it. And so the executive director called me and asked me if I would come and clean that room. And I said, well, I will, but only under one circumstance. And that is that we, uh, figure out what what had made that happen so it doesn't happen again. And so we started doing uh, productive environment days. Well, there was a man, an employee in the company named George, and George was a pack rat. His whole office was full and he had kind of eked over into a conference room next. And the executive director had said to him, OK, George, you got to get rid of some of this stuff. So he did. He wasn't very happy, but he had to get rid of some stuff. So about six months after, or maybe six weeks after we'd done the job, I went back to see how things were doing. Now, keep in mind, this was the first time I'd ever done this, and I was terrified. It was over 100 employees, a very upper level um, office, and I'd never done something like this. And to be honest, I was terrified that somebody might have thrown away something that was important, even though I told them not to take any risks, but I just didn't know. So I went back and I got off the elevator. I just got off the elevator and here comes George. And he says, well, Hemphill, I knew it. And I'll tell you, my palms got sweaty and my heart's pounding. And my stomach's in knots. And I'm thinking, oh, my gosh. He said, as soon as you left, he said it wasn't three days later. And Carolyn from the seventh floor comes and says, George, do you have such and such? And I had to say no, because Hemphill was here and I threw it away. Well, I'm thinking this is probably the end of my career. And I got him enough nerve to take a deep breath and say, well, George, what happened? And there was this pause and he got this little smile on his face and he says, not a blankety blank thing. 
And do you know, in the 40 years I've been doing this, I have never had anyone come back and say they were sorry they did it. Now, I always warn people that you will get rid of something that a week from now, a month from now, or a year from now, <coughs> excuse me, you w- might wish you had. But what you have to think about is what was the price you paid for that in order in order to have that, that one thing. And the other thing is people say to me, every time I throw something away, I need it again. And I will say, can you give me an example? Most of the time, people cannot give an example. Most of the time, it's a fear they have, but it's not something that really happens. And even if it did happen, then you have to say, okay, so if you had not gone through the cleansing process that we went through, would you want to live in that environment anymore? And the answer would be no. So it does. It creates an an enormous lightness. And the employees... When I go into companies to do this, you can see the employees sitting there cross-armed like, I have real work to do today, and besides, I don't want to throw away anything. And so I just ask them the question, how many of you have more stuff at home than you prefer? Well, 50% will raise their hands, and statistically, it's true for 80%. So I say, everything we're going to talk about today applies at home. So then they're listening because they're at work, and you know the boss is paying for them. Plus, they're getting breakfast, right? You know, they're getting free breakfast, and they're getting they're getting the ten dollars Starbucks cards, and they're getting free lunch and whatever. It's like okay. So then, though, I know that most of them are listening for what they're going to tell their spouse or their significant other. So I make them take a pledge. They have to raise their right hand and pledge that they're going to listen for what they're going to do, not what they're going to tell somebody else to do. And then that makes them laugh and that gets them involved. And I can tell you over and over, um, just before COVID, I did a a small nonprofit. There are about 11 employees. They had three rooms full of filing cabinets that had accumulated over 20 years. And when I went in, the energy level in there was just awful. By two o'clock in the afternoon, people say, I'm going home and clean up my attic. I'm going home and clean up my garage. I mean, it was like a completely different group of people. You would not have thought. And it's, that's what happens when you get rid of clutter. Yeah, it's not just the lightness and how good you feel, but somehow it attracts good things to you. Yes, it creates a vacuum. So another way I can tell you that story is I had I'm a pianist. I majored in music. And when I lived in India, I inherited some money from my grandmother and I got I bought a grand piano, a six and a half foot handmade grand piano, which I carried all around the world with me. Everywhere I moved, when I would find a place to live, I had to first figure out where the grand piano would fit. And then we looked at everything else. Well, I the piano got old. I called the piano tuner and he said he couldn't tune it anymore. It was really an antique and I needed to get rid of it. Well, emotionally, that was really hard because that was my grandmother's money. And plus, it's a piano I love. But I did get rid of it before I had a new piano. And so I just left that empty space sitting in my living room. And one day, my husband handed me an ad from the paper that said that a company here was having a sale on pianos. And I went out there and I had looked I had looked at pianos before, but nothing had really struck my attention. And I went out here and there was this beautiful Petrov handmade Czechoslovakia piano. And I mean, it was just absolutely gorgeous. Well, it was originally I didn't have any idea what it was worth or anything. And they gave me a quote on it. I think it was it was like fifteen thousand dollars. 
And I didn't know if that was reasonable or not. I called New York City to find out and they tried to buy it from me because that was such a an enormous, a fabulous price for it. Uh, and so I got it. I firmly believe that if I had not removed that other piano and created that vacuum, it would not have allowed that to come into my life and be such a blessing to me. And every day I play it now, I just think about what a blessing that instrument is to me. You have to give up. One of our principles is you have to get up, give up good to get best. Well, even if you're giving up bad, <laughs> that's you can give up stuff and yep. you're going to get good things coming in. Absolutely. That is for sure. Excellent. Well, um, if there's maybe one or two things that you want people to take away from listening uh, to this recording, what would those be? What would be the main things that you would want people to to do or to understand? Well, if you listen to this and you said, oh, yeah, that's right. Oh, I need to do that, whatever. But you don't do anything about it, then you might as well have been watching a Netflix movie instead of listening to this. So one of the things you want to do is ask yourself the question, what is one thing that has to happen in my life for me to feel happy with my progress? And I guarantee you the answer to that question, getting that will inevitably involve getting rid of some form of clutter. It may be cluttering your brain, you know, like I'm too old to do that or too fat to do that or too stupid to do that or whatever. That's an emotional clutter is another kind of clutter. <clears throat> so what's the one thing? that you want to happen in your life. And you could say a year, you could say, one of the things that I think during this COVID environment is to say, what what's something good that could come out of COVID? What's there something that you've always wanted to do that perhaps you never had time to do or that you could do? And then the second question is, what is the next action I can take to move in that direction? And you do it, and when? What is the next action? And by when research shows we are 67% more likely to accomplish a goal if we have an accountability partner. So once you identify what that what that one thing is and what the action is, then find an accountability partner, whether it's a friend or whether it's someone that you pay. But the people in the world, if you think about the people that you know that have really accomplished wonderful things you will find without exception that they built in accountability in some way or another. We were not created to work alone. We were created to work with others. Uh, one of our principles of paper of a productive environment is together we are better. Uh, as a business owner, it is not about getting a bigger piece of the pie. It is about making the pie bigger. Right. People talk about all the things that COVID has caused. I choose to look at it as all the things COVID has revealed. COVID has revealed clutter in our lives and in our systems and in our country in ways that we've never seen before. And I believe out of it can come really, really great things. The original Renaissance, there was a terrible epidemic going on during the, the Renaissance back when 
Christopher Columbus was coming to America. And after that was the Renaissance. All the wonderful, great things, art and music came out of it. So we have an opportunity to have a Renaissance in our own private lives. Maybe we can't change the world, but we can change ourselves. And I always tell people, um, you want to control. Organizing is about controlling the things you can control so you can cope with the things you can't. And there are so many things in this COVID environment that you can control and so much clutter that you can get rid of. Excellent. Well, Barbara, thank you so much. That's a ton of valuable information. And, um, and then there's more because people will have access to your free webinar that'll go into your magic six and so many of the other points that you covered. So I really appreciate your being with us today, and um, I hope that everybody gets a lot of value from listening to this and going to your webinar. Well, I hope you hear some success stories from things that uh, I hope your listeners will tell you some stories about things that they did as a result of this. And the thing of it is, if we do it, then we inspire others to do it as well. So I would say our company is about helping people accomplish their work and enjoy their lives and encourage others to do the same. Uh, I want on my tombstone, she gave others hope uh, because I believe that there's there's always hope. I happen to be a Christian, so my ultimate hope is in Jesus. But in the meantime, I believe that there's hope for everyone uh, if we work together. Excellent. And if people wanted to reach out to you, what's the best way for them to do that? You can email me Barbara at BarbaraHemphill.com. And my website is BarbaraHemphill.com as well. Uh, we have a network. There's a free network. I didn't even mention this. There's a free network called ProductiveEnvironmentNetwork.com. Uh, you can go there and register for free. There are a ton of information there on organizing your life. Uh, there's videos. We have a, a love a video on the seven daily disciplines. Uh, it talks about having a morning routine and an evening routine and getting enough sleep and drinking enough water and all the things that make you live a healthy life. So ProductiveEnvironmentNetwork.com also has lots of free information for anyone who wants to move forward and to get encouragement uh, during this pandemic. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. And I really appreciate your being here today. Thank you for having me, Judy. I appreciate the opportunity.